If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 45. That's what we'll look at this morning. The text is printed in the bulletin for you also. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Psalm 45. Um, about ten years ago, actually pretty close to ten years ago exactly, uh, a couple asked me to do their wedding uh, from the church that I used to go to and uh, be a pastor of. And the scripture text that they wanted me to use was from Revelation 19, and maybe you're familiar with that uh, because that's where the wedding supper of the Lamb is located, in the, sort of the middle of Revelation 19. Uh, but they wanted to include the whole first part of that chapter, and this is how it starts off. Hallelujah, for God has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So uh, I got to preach on the whore of Babylon at a wedding. Uh, That was fun. Then a few years later, another couple requested something from the prophets about walls breached and uh, cities laid waste and lands ruined and made desolate. It was another interesting uh, sermon from Ezekiel. Uh, for a wedding. Then finally, finally, along came Sam and Katie and requested a good, sensible scripture at their wedding, Psalm 45. And uh, a lot of you probably uh, were there to remember that wedding. This is a scripture for a wedding. This is a scripture for a wedding, Psalm 45. It celebrates a royal wedding, king and uh, the princess that he's marrying to be his queen. Celebrates a royal wedding, but more than that, it's a divine wedding really is about the wedding between God and his people. And in fact, when you read it in connection with the rest of the scriptures, and you see how uh, all the scriptures tie together, you realize that this great wedding song that we find, it's a pretty unique song in, in the Psalms. This great wedding song is describing God's whole work in all the history of the world. A love song. A love song. That's what God's been doing this whole time. Singing a love song. So, um, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we think about Psalm 45 together. Let's, uh, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would uh, do a special work of your Holy Spirit now. The work that he always loves to do in pointing us to Jesus Help us to see Christ, to fall in love with him if we haven't done so, to fall deeper in love with him if, uh, if we have, to taste of him, to long for him, to praise him, because we've seen him in this, your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> to the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, there are two main parts to this psalm. Uh, maybe that's obvious to you as you're sort of looking at this just at a glance. You see the, the first part is extolling the king. The second part, the queen. The first part, the, the king of Judah, of the line of David, seeing him prepare himself for the union, for the wedding. The second part, the bride-to-be, as she processes to his side. <clears throat> and it's the wonderful moment. Really, it, it leads you right up to that wonderful moment when it, it, in a wedding, it finally dawns on everyone. This is really happening. This is really happening. The moment we've been waiting for has arrived. Here he is. Look, here she comes. And hearts pound and tears flow. It's one of the happiest moments of our lives. And the servants start opening a champagne in the dinner hall because this is really happening. We're really doing this. And the wonderful message of the whole Bible, and here in Psalm 45 in particular, is that the bridegroom is Jesus and his bride is the church. There's some pretty big indicators here that, uh, that Psalm 45 is about something more significant than any one ancient Near Eastern royal wedding. Uh, and here's a big obvious one. Here's a big obvious indicator. It's about more than that. Among all the exalted language that's describing the happy couple, there's some language right there in the middle that is so exalted that it would be blasphemy if it were only applied to a mere human being. Addressing the royal groom the king, the bridegroom. The singer of the psalm says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's language that would be blasphemy if it were only applied to a mere human being. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the king, being addressed here, he is God. But the king also has a God. See in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So the king is God, but the king also has a God. And the scriptures say everywhere, there's only one God. How do we make sense of this? Here, God is a, a human king 
who himself has God as his God. So uh, that can understandably be very confusing, but Christians, Christians have always believed this to be speaking about Jesus Christ, the one who is both God and a man, a human being in relationship with God. He's the son of God according to his divinity, and he's the royal son of David according to that lineage, his humanity. And here you've got God anointing the God-man at his wedding, which really only makes sense when you believe that God is triune, that God is the Father and God is the Son in the communion of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, so God the Father here anoints God the Son incarnate, God in the flesh, the God-man. And he anoints him with the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so Athanasius, who's just one of the many voices in uh, the ancient church that um, reads this psalm this way, he says... Uh, in the 300s sometime, A.D., said that, uh, that this is the voice of the Father addressing the Son. That's the voice that we hear in this psalm, the voice of the Father addressing the Son, the voice of God speaking to Jesus Christ. And all the early church fathers make a big deal about that. They all agree on that point. In fact, uh, it's not just the church fathers. It's a New Testament author. So it's in the Scripture, right? Um, he makes this explicit in, uh, in Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews, because Hebrews chapter 1 quotes Psalm 45 and says it's about Jesus. So this psalm is prophetically celebrating the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, which is how Jesus identified himself as recorded in the Gospels. He talks about himself as the bridegroom, and he gives several parables about how uh, the kingdom of God is like this wedding feast that uh, is thrown for this, this royal, this prince, this bridegroom. So that's how Jesus identifies himself, and that's what this psalm is celebrating. It says in verse 2, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Uh, this isn't just a celebration of his physical appearance when it says you're the most handsome of the sons of men. Um, the Bible doesn't really give us a description of uh, Jesus' physical appearance. Uh, just It really isn't about his physical appearance when, you know, in, in uh, the Song of Songs, uh, Chapter 5, it says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Or in the book of Revelation, there at the end of the scriptures, when John describes Jesus in his vision as having white hair like snow and eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze with a sword coming out of his mouth. Obviously, that's not a physical description of Jesus. It's poetic language, right? It's poetic language used to exalt his personal qualities beyond comparison. So it was said of Jesus um, when he was here on earth, even by his enemies, his enemies were the ones that said this, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. When Jesus came into the world, his very coming was the most beautiful thing imaginable. Because here is God taking on not just human form, not just the lowly, form of a servant, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, he really took on ugliness. He took on ugliness, and when we were most evil to him, he bore our ugliness, and he forgave it, and he cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. Language you see in Ephesians 5, that uh, New Testament reading that Holly read. And this has been God's intention for grooms, for bridegrooms, 
since the beginning. God created Adam and Eve. And God brought Eve to Adam and gave her away to him. As a father gives away a bride, gave her away to Adam in marriage. And he performed the wedding ceremony himself. Let not man separate what I have joined together. And King Adam was supposed to honor his spouse, his bride. Supposed to instruct her and beautify her and protect his bride. He was to tell her God's word. And he was to keep God's word before her as her reality. He was to equip her for a beautiful life in relationship with God, a beautiful life in relationship with himself by teaching her the washing of the water with the word. That's what he was supposed to do. But he failed. The groom let his bride face the enemy without his help to the utter ruin of our race. And then he shifted the blame to her. But Jesus, who is the second Adam, the new man, the true kingly bridegroom, he is fairer and brighter and purer in every way. Jesus is better at honoring and defending and cherishing and beautifying and exalting his bride than any man who ever lived. He's better. Jesus made God's word our reality. He is the very word of God come in the flesh, come to redefine our relationship with God himself. Come to proclaim once and for all the forgiveness of our sins. Come to cleanse us and purify us by the grace that's poured upon his lips, the washing of water with the word. And it's because of this that God blessed him forever. God blessed him forever. It's easy for us to think that the world is about us. It's easy for us to really have a self-centered view of life and the world, even that the Bible is about us primarily, ultimately. It's easy for us to think that because, look, the message of the Bible is Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus exalted us. Jesus made us a really big deal. But there's nothing about us that deserves that place of honor that Jesus gives us. Tim Keller says, um, he says, he doesn't love us because we're lovely, but in order to make us so by grace. That's why he loves us. Not because we're lovely. He loves us in order to make us lovely by his grace. That's the message of the Bible everywhere that talks about Jesus as the bridegroom, everywhere it talks about us as the bride. Here in Psalm 45, you go read the Song of Songs, you go read Ezekiel 16, uh, which is a little bit explicit, I think, for this morning. Uh, you read the book of Hosea, you read Ephesians 5, which we've read uh, already during worship. Go home and read it again. Revelation 19 through the end of the book. He makes his bride beautiful. He does that. He does that, and he did it by taking our spiritual ugliness on himself and granting us his own spiritual beauty, dying on the cross to forgive us and cleansing us by the washing of the water of the word, the grace poured upon his lips. Which means, yes, 
the bride is greatly exalted. Greatly exalted. You can't get around it. But what that really means is that Jesus is the bridegroom who's exalted as the, as the great exalter. The story of the Bible, the story of the whole history of the world, is a story first about this great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Amen. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So these uh, verses 3 through 5, they give us insight into the nature of Jesus' power. The nature of Jesus' power. There's a lot of military imagery. It's the language of a conquering king, a king that's good at defending his people. It says in uh, Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Military strength. When Jesus came into the world to win his bride, he rode out in majesty, ready to do victorious battle. But what kind of steed did he ride? What kind of sword did he bring? What kind of conquering battle did he come to do? What did it look like for Jesus in his majesty to ride out victoriously? It says right in the middle of those verses, for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. So literally, that's uh, for the cause of truth and meekness righteousness. little hyphenated word there. Um, doesn't really make sense in the English, but the humble kind of righteousness. That's, that's how he came. King Jesus surprised us all when he came uniquely among all the kings of the earth, not riding a great war steed, but mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding into a city full of people who had made themselves his enemies, weeping for them, weeping for them and giving himself for their salvation. He didn't come bringing a metal sword, swinging it around, hacking, stabbing at other people, but making war against war. He made war against war, crushing violence through his surrender. Uh, We'll look at this next week in Psalm 46, but I'll quote these verses now. Uh, Verses 8 and 9, it says, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. War and all the instruments of war, he destroys that. He makes war against that. So when he defeats his enemies, it looks like putting an end to their enmity. That's what it looks like. It looks like striking them to the heart with a new repentant love for for God, for himself. It looks like saving them from themselves and advancing his kingdom by turning his enemies into his friends. This he has done through his complete surrender at the cross. And because of that, because of that now, he is King of kings, Lord of lords, and all authority in heaven and on earth belong to him. 
Continuing in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. So Jesus died on the cross. And then his friends buried him in the robes of death. Filled with spices, about 75 pounds worth, John's Gospel says. A mixture of myrrh and aloes, spices just like these. These are the spices that you find throughout the scriptures. The spices of love and the spices of death. When God raised Jesus from the grave, he would have been all fragrant with these spices as he walked in the garden outside of his empty tomb. And then God did something even more marvelous than than raising him from the dead, the greatest miracle ever to that point in history. God exalted him to the palaces of heaven, far above all heavens, and he anointed him. God anointed Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, with the oil of gladness beyond all others. That is, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, so that he could anoint others with the same Holy Spirit. That's what Christ means. Christ comes from that. It's the Greek word that is, uh, comes, it translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. He's the anointed one. And so Jesus Christ is the happiest man alive. He's the happiest man alive. The crucified king is the happiest man alive. Fragrant with all the spices of love and death, he's the happiest man alive, and he lives forever. And now he stands on the brink of his wedding. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. He laid down his life for his bride. He took up his life again. He's gone into heaven. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. And now his people are processing to that place at his side. The church, the queen of heaven, even people from foreign lands adorned in gold of Ophir. That's, uh, that's some place. They actually don't know exactly where it was, but uh, it's sort of like the gold mines where Solomon uh, sent ships to bring all the gold back to to beautify his kingdom, bringing the wealth and the glory and the honor of the nations to him. So coming to Jesus Christ can be quite like a young woman making ready to walk down that aisle. A young woman maybe scared, maybe with second thoughts. Just a young woman who's only known her father's house, making ready to walk down that aisle. In marriage, there's both an end to the old and there's a beginning of the new. Leaving the comforts of your own parents and your family and embarking on the unknown adventure of union to a new man that you don't really know yet. And and therefore a new family, new life leaving the old, beginning the new. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. 
and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Again, that language that we, we see later in Ephesians 5. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. So Derek Kidner is a commentator on this. He says that the, the parting, he's talking about the parting and new beginning, which are fundamental to all marriage, all marriage, old loyalties must not compete with the new. Old loyalties must not compete with the new. That's what Jesus talks about when he says in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He can't be united to a new husband if you're holding on to all these things that defined you before. Um, That's not to say you actually maliciously hate these things. But you're leaving them behind. You're severing old loyalties. You're in a new union with a new husband, a new bridegroom. And this leaving and cleaving, as it's called, was established by God in the very first wedding union, Adam and Eve, ultimately is a picture of our spiritual union with Christ. Yes, it's true. It should be true of all of our marriages. Um, but, it, but that's because it should be true of our spiritual union with Christ. The happy couple reorders all their old relationships, everything in their lives. They reorder it based on this new relationship. This is what God has always called his people to do. A passage that has a lot of parallels in it. You may never have thought as parallel to this. This idea of a a husband and a wife forming a uh, a new union, leaving the old behind and beginning something new. It says in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. All the nations will be blessed because of you. Ending something old. Leave your your country and your kindred and your father's house. Begin something new. In union with God. God doesn't call you to uh, to, to just part with the old and forsake everything familiar and comfortable just to make life miserable for you. You don't need to be afraid of that. He calls you to leave the old life, really to leave the old life of sin and rebellion against God, keeping God at a distance, giving yourself to other gods, identifying yourself and defining yourself by other things, things other than your relationship with him. He says, leave all that behind in order to enjoy the wonder and the glory and the blessing and the fruitfulness of a new life in union with himself, spiritual union. You're not kept down by bowing to Christ as your Lord. You're not kept down by that. You are elevated by your union with Him. All that is His belongs to you. His very place of majesty in the world He shares with His bride. That's what this psalm says. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. I mean, a white robe, a white dress for a bride, that's just fine. It symbolizes something. That's good. Uh, Many colored robes interwoven with gold. It's just this grand, beautiful, rare, rich picture. 
In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They're led along as they enter the palace of the king. Jesus is better at honoring and defending, cherishing, beautifying, and exalting his bride than any other man who ever lived. You can trust that being led to his side will mean joy and gladness. It will mean that. It might not make much sense to you in this life how it can all mean that, but it will mean that, that your, your union with Christ, it'll be fruitful. Just as we say at weddings, we could talk so much about all the parallels between this and our wedding traditions, just as we say at weddings that the purpose of such unions is procreation, the furthering of the human race. Love multiplies. That's why God created the world. And that's why God made us in his image. God made humanity in his image, male and female, so that they could multiply. And he said, bless them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. May the union of your love bear forth children who love, who bear forth children who love, who carry the fruitful, creative image of God into the future perpetually. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So for an earthly marriage, this is a picture of children. For the spiritual marriage, this is a picture of the blessing of the nations that God promised to Abraham. It's the fruit of evangelism. It's the harvest of mission. It's people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every generation from from now on and forevermore coming to praise Jesus Christ and bow to him as Lord. And there's a great secret, I think, in these these last two verses, 16 and 17, uh, hidden by the English translation. It can be a little confusing as you're just reading through it. All the places there in those two verses where it says you and your in Hebrew, they're masculine. So the king is being addressed again. We were talking about the bride, and now the king is being addressed again. Who's addressing him? Maybe it seems obvious. Maybe. Uh, It isn't quite explicit. Who's singing this wedding song to him, this whole song? To the king, to Jesus. Who's singing this song? Who is it that says at the beginning, my heart overflows? Whose heart? Whose heart overflows with a pleasing theme? Actually, a pleasing theme is, uh, is a bit extra poetic language. It really just uh, says a good word. My heart overflows with a good word. Whose heart? Who addresses his verses, his works, to the king? Whose tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe? It's God. It's God. God is the one singing this whole psalm. Psalm 45 is about the great works of God, bringing a bride to his son in a glorious wedding union. A fruitful wedding. Just an old-fashioned love song, one I'm sure they wrote for you and me. Just an old-fashioned love song coming down in three-part harmony. (laughs) 
That's what God's been singing in the creation of the world, throughout the history of his relationship with his people, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in all of the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. It's just an old-fashioned love song. It's a love song, a song for a divine wedding. And when Jesus returns, and when we see him face to face, then it'll dawn on us, look, there's the groom. And look, here is his bride. This is really happening. Let's do this. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, thrill us with your love, your love for your son, your son's love for us, your love for us, the oil of gladness poured upon Jesus Christ that he has also poured upon us in the Holy Spirit who's been given to us and all the love of God poured into our hearts. It really does make us glad to see you, to consider this relationship with you that you have initiated, that you have planned, that you have worked, that you have established, that you've promised, that you will bring to ultimate fruition in the new heavens and the new earth when we see you and live with you in glory, in glorious union. We look forward to that day. We pray that it would come quickly, that you would keep our hearts attuned to Jesus. You would keep our eyes uh, and our minds fixed on Jesus, the great bridegroom that the world has um, seen and that the world will see because you are good, because you've promised it, because it's the great song of all the world that there will be this bridegroom and that there will be this bride and there will be this union and it will be a delight forever. We look forward to it. We pray that you would bring it quickly. We pray that you would help our friends to, who don't yet know you to uh, look forward to that as well. Make us fruitful as your bride. Make us um, fruitful as we bear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.